We're continuing this morning with that series on the book of Romans, picking up at verse 12 and working through to verse 17, sort of. Um, in this particular chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, um, as we've seen before, Paul is shifting gears a little bit from what he's been doing in this letter. Up to this point, Paul has been concentrating on what it is that God has done for us, that is, for all those that are His. Specifically, he's talked a great deal about how a thoroughly unrighteous humanity, a humanity that is fully deserving of God's wrath, nevertheless can be and actually has been forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God. And the way that God has done that is by supplying his people with a righteousness that is not their own, that they've not merited or deserved, but which has been imputed or credited to them anyway. So the first half of this letter has focused in the main on what God has done for us. And now in chapter 8, Paul shifts attention from that to what uh, God has done and is doing in us and within us by means of his indwelling Holy Spirit. And the main thing that God has done in us and is doing in us is just that. He sent His Spirit to, into our hearts. He sent his, his sent his Spirit to take up residence within us, to live within us. And by that process, a number of things have happened and are happening. By that process, He has made us spiritually alive. He's made it so that we are now able to understand and respond to spiritual things, giving us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear, to use the language of the New Testament, uh, things that we could not see or could not hear or understand before. In short, by the Spirit's presence and working, God is making us to be, in our life, what He's already declared us to be in Jesus. He's bringing about an actual righteousness that He's already credited with us because of Jesus. He's bringing about the sort of life that the law of God talks about, and codifies, and describes, and even demands, but it's powerless. The law of God is powerless to produce that sort of life in itself. And the way that Paul's gone about discussing these things is by contrasting two ways of living or being, speaking about those who live according to the flesh, by which he means those who do not know or belong to the Lord Jesus, those who are self-referential in terms of their life and their worldview, or perhaps this world referential, that class of person over against those who live and walk according to the Spirit and are now God-referential. Which means, as we saw last week, that the determinative indicator, right? The determinative indicator that a person belongs to the Lord is the fact of the indwelling Spirit's presence. It is the fact that the Spirit of God has taken up residence within them. That is the determinative thing. Not how they feel about God. Not whether they've had a significant spiritual experience and raised a hand or signed a card or both. Not even the fact that God has used them in this world or in the life, uh, lives of other people in this world. None of those things, none of those things are guarantees of anything. However, the indisputable indicator that a person belongs to the Lord Jesus is the fact of the indwelling Spirit's presence. Then Paul went on from saying those things to acknowledging three encouragements that flow from that reality. Firstly, that the Spirit who is within us is life. He doesn't just bring life. He is life. 
Secondly, that the reason we can have this blessing of the Spirit's life and presence is because of God's righteousness. In other words, we have it, but not because of something we have achieved, which then means we have it and we can't lose it. There's a permanence to it. Thirdly, the same Spirit that we have is the one that raised Jesus from the dead, and therefore He will do the same. He'll do the same for you and me one day. The grave will not be able to hold us because the very Spirit who is life itself who resurrected Jesus, that spirit lives within us. So those are sort of three great assurances that the Apostle Paul gives to the Romans and indeed to everyone who's indwelt by the Spirit of God. But that, of course, begs the big question. Because all the assurances that Paul gives, all the comforting truths he's just mentioned, all those realities are contingent upon this one truth. And it's this. Whether or not the Spirit of God is in fact, dwelling within you. How do we know that? How do we know that the Spirit of God is living within us? Three times in verses 9 to 11, the condition is given. Certain things are said to be true about us or for us if, if the Spirit dwells within us, which is great. But how do we know? How can we know that that's true? That's what we're going to start looking at this morning. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Great Father in heaven, would you please come uh, by your Spirit, by the same Spirit that indwells your people, the same Spirit that leads your people into the truth, the same Spirit that brings about rebirth and regeneration, the same Spirit that gives gifts and causes good fruit to come forth from our lives. Would you, by that Spirit, please come and teach us and guide us into an understanding of these truths before us now. Truths that your Spirit authored. And we ask this with no confidence in ourselves, but with every confidence in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the passage we're looking at is in the bulletin. Uh, and certainly you're welcome to use that, but let me encourage you to use your Bibles if you have them, to read along in that way. Um, you kind of develop a memory of where things are in the Bible just before they fall on a page or in the Bible. It becomes more useful to you over time if you actually use your Bible in that way. So I'd encourage that for you as we read along. So let me read this passage to you. The words I'm about to read are absolutely true and completely reliable. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The first thing I want you to see is this. We're not debtors, that is, we're not under obligation to the flesh. We don't have to obey the dictates of our sinful nature anymore. We're under no obligation there, no matter how much it feels like that may be true at times. But we are, by contrast, obligated to live according to the Spirit. 
That is the unstated but clearly implied truth associated with verse 12. But what does that mean, to be obligated to live according to the Spirit? What's Paul saying? Let's start out by thinking about what Paul doesn't mean. When Paul uses this language of debt or obligation to imply that we must live according to the Spirit, if we want to experience the life he gives, when Paul uses that language, he's not suggesting a causal connection. In other words, he's not here contradicting everything that he said up to this point about salvation by grace through faith in this letter. He's not saying that living according to the Spirit qualifies as some kind of work by which we merit for ourselves God's blessing. But he is saying this. He's saying that we are obligated to live according to the Spirit. Not because we must, but because we will. Because that is the natural outworking. That is what happens if, in fact, the Spirit of God indwells a person. The fact of that residency ensures that certain things are going to happen and be true for a person and about a person. The fact of his residency ensures that. And those things are not optional. It's not that they might or might not be. They're obligatory. Obligatory in the sense that they're things that will and must happen, that must follow from the fact of the Spirit's presence. Hebrews 12, 14, very succinctly but very clearly says this. It says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's strong language. Douglas Moo in his commentary on Romans highlights the reality of this tension between the fact of our justification by grace through faith and the way that the Bible speaks about personal holiness in this not optional but obligatory sort of fashion. In a way that he says this, in a way that we cannot finally synthesize in a neat logical arrangement, Paul insists that what God has done for us in Christ is the sole and final grounds for our eternal life at the same time as he insists on the indispensability of holy living as a precondition for attaining that life. Neither the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, nor the imperative, what we are commanded to do, can be eliminated. They cannot be severed from one another. They are inextricably connected. Now the truth of this, the obligatory nature of living according to the Spirit, that can be a difficult truth to communicate given the current state of affairs within the Reformed and Evangelical world. What do I mean by that? When I was a young Christian, when I was a new believer, uh, at LSU actually, in the second semester there as a student, when I, was a, uh, I became a believer, there was a strong emphasis at that time in evangelical churches upon living a godly life, on discipleship and pursuing God, And uh, books like uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, for example, by Jerry Bridges, which is a good book, were very, very popular at that time. But there was a problem. There was a problem with how those things were taught and how they were emphasized, at least in my world and experience. Brian Chappell describes it well. He says this, After initially trusting in Christ to make them right with God, many Christians embark on an endless pursuit of trying to satisfy God with good works that will keep Him loving them. Such Christians believe that they are saved by God's grace, but they are kept in His care by their own goodness. This belief, whether articulated or buried deep in a psyche developed by the way we were treated by parents or spouses or others, makes the Christian life a perpetual race 
on a performance treadmill to keep winning God's affection. That description really was what my own introduction to the Christian life was all about. It was a long time before it was made clear to me how much I had embraced that unbiblical and unhelpful approach to the Christian life. In God's kindness, he moved me from that earlier perspective to a better one, also, I think, well described by Chapel. He says it this way, it's, it's helpful. He says, while the Christian life can be characterized as a race, we persevere on the course God marks out for us, not by straining to gain his affection, but by the assurance that he never stops viewing us from the perspective of his grace. God continually offers us unconditional love and the encouragement that our status as his children does not vary even though our efforts do. When I see my son's energy flag in his cross-country meets, he writes, I shout encouragement to revive his resolve and keep him going and running. I know intuitively that threats or expressions of frustration would sap his strength for the long race ahead and the many races to come, even if my pressure were to spur him on for the moment. God is a better father than I, and his encouragement rings more powerfully and wisely and lovingly and continually in his children's souls. And we race in the confidence that his grace does not cease just because we have faltered. Grace becomes not only the means by which God once justified us, it is also the means by which we are continually encouraged and enabled to serve him with undiminished delight. So my experience as a new believer, as a young believer growing up, was a, a wrong emphasis on holiness merely by my own efforts. That was a holiness, a pursuit of holiness, that was actually divorced from the gospel. Thankfully, that perspective was later corrected by a much-needed teaching on how our growth in holiness is also by grace and through faith. However, there's another problem. Um, sometimes in Reformed and Evangelical circles, especially today... It is the case that what was at one time in the, the life of the church was a very helpful corrective in this area of grace and holiness has in some instances become a kind of hyper-grace emphasis that doesn't have a place for and doesn't, frankly doesn't know what to do with the Bible's continued calls to pursue holiness within a context of grace. And so what can happen that under this kind of hyper-grace emphasis, any attempt to talk about what we should or should not do, any attempts to promote obedience and spiritual disciplines are met with the immediate charge or suspicion of legalism or moralism. Now let me be the first to agree that legalism and moralism are not helpful. Again, Chapel's words are helpful. He says, it's not enough. It's not enough for the advocates of grace simply to react against legalism. One must also respond to the license that always tempts Christians when preachers say things like, God will love you no matter what. Legalism makes believers think that God accepts them on the basis of what they do. But licentiousness makes believers think that God does not care what they do. But both errors have terrible spiritual consequences. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Grace should not make obedience optional. When God removes good works as a condition for his acceptance, he does not remove righteousness 
as a requirement for life. God does not love us because we obey Him, but we cannot know the blessing of His love without obedience. Grace that bears fruit is biblical. Grace that goes to seed uses God's unconditional love as an excuse for selfish indulgence. Such egocentric living ultimately burdens us with guilt and the consequences of sin that God has designed His grace to remove. That's right, isn't it? There's a balance here to what Paul is saying about living according to the Spirit. And to do so with the language of obligation is not wrong. And it's not anti-gospel. It's an expression of the truth of the gospel. And my fear, my fear sometimes is that we have a whole generation of Christians being raised with a warped understanding of grace that produces a kind of de facto antinomianism, a rejection of the moral law, and creates misguided Christians who are resistant to teaching and emphases that speak about what we should do and what we should not do, what we should practice, what we should avoid. A whole generation of believers that can readily and quickly acknowledge their sin and even correctly identify the various idolatries in their heart, but they are not horrified by those idolatries. And they feel no strong urge to address it or resist it, but from all external appearances seem to have made their peace with that particular sin. That's the first thing I want you to see. We are not obligated to the flesh, but we are debtors too. And we are obligated to live according to the Spirit. Not because we must, but because we will if He's there. The second thing I want you to see is this, and perhaps you've run ahead and already picked up on this, but the answer to the question that was posed at the beginning of this study, how can we know that the Spirit of God is in fact living within us? The answer, at least the one that Paul chooses to highlight here, is, I think, clearly seen verses 13 to 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How can we know objectively that the Spirit of God is in fact living and working within us? Paul's answer is, because by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds or misdeeds of the body. That's the objective evidence. Here's the logic of the passage. Firstly, Paul talks about putting to death the deeds or misdeeds of the body. He follows that up by saying, for or because all who are led by the Spirit, all who are led by the Spirit, meaning for all who are thus led by the Spirit are sons of God. He talks about putting to death the misdeeds of the body for or because all who are thus led are sons of God. In other words, by their actively engaging and working to extinguish sin in their lives, they show that they not only possess the Spirit, but they are being led by the Spirit. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. And they show their identity. They show themselves to be the sons of God that they are. So the thing that shows objectively that God's people are indwelt by the Spirit is this fact that they're actively engaged in putting sin to death. Piper talks about it like this. The Holy Spirit confirms His presence by leading us into a war with our own sin. The children of God hate sin. The children of God have the values and priorities and preferences and tastes of their Father. And the reason they share these traits of God their Father is because they have His Spirit. 
who leads them this way. He gives them new tastes and new preferences and new values and new pleasures and guess what? A new sadness. And so the evidence of our sonship is, do we fight sin in our lives or are we blasé about sin in our lives? The daily practice of killing sin in your life is the result of being justified and the evidence that you are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. If you are making war on your sin and walking by the Spirit, then you know that you've been united with Christ by faith alone. On the other hand, if you are living according to the flesh, if you are not making war on the flesh and not making a practice of killing sin in your life or attempting to kill it, then there's no compelling... These are tough words. But if that's gone, it's not there, it's not on the radar screen, there is no compelling reason for thinking that you are united to Christ by faith or that you're therefore justified. In other words, putting to death the deeds of the body is not the way we get justified, but it is the way that God shows that we're justified. So Paul commands us to do it. Be killing sin. Be killing it. Because if we don't, if we don't make war on the flesh and put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, if growth in grace and holiness mean nothing to us, then we show that we're probably false in our profession of faith. So the thing that shows objectively that we're indwelt by the Spirit of God, in the context of Romans at least, is the fact that by the Spirit we're actively engaged in putting sin to death in our lives. Real moral effort, not perfect, A lot of failure, a lot of repentance, a lot of brokenness, but the effort is being exerted. It's real. Which is to say, it's not enough, okay? It is, it's not enough to merely be able to admit your brokenness, nor is it enough to be able to correctly identify and label your brokenness or even dissect the nature of your sin in a thousand different ways. That's all helpful, but what Paul has in view here is more than that. He's talking about personal engagement. He's talking about hand-to-hand combat with your own heart. Which brings up then the third thing I want you to see this morning. Please note this. All, don't miss this. The all-important phrase, by the Spirit, in verse 13. In other words, Paul doesn't say that the indicator that the Spirit truly does live in the person is that the person is in her own power and strength by sheer unaided moral effort putting to death the deeds and desires of the sinful nature. No. He says that the indicator that a person is being led by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the body is just that. That the Spirit is involved in that process. The person in question is putting to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit. The question, of course, is what does that mean? What does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Well, as we've already seen, the mere fact of the Spirit's presence means that we've been made alive spiritually. We're now able to see and understand and apprehend spiritual realities in a way we couldn't before. It means we have new hopes and new desires, new life. Anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so for one thing, the sheer fact of our being indwelt by the Spirit affects the way we see things and understand things and approach things. But, Secondly, I should say, in the particular effect and influence of the Spirit that seems to be primarily in view in these verses is the Spirit's specific role 
in causing the people of God to be aware of their adoption as the children of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You hear what Paul is saying there? He's saying that the Spirit of God who leads us, who shows His presence specifically by leading us into putting to death the misdeeds of the body, that Spirit is the one who also causes us to be aware of and appreciate deeply our standing with God, our position relative to Him. Namely, that He's our Heavenly Father and we are His very children. And so strong is this reality within us that we find ourselves doing the very thing that our own children naturally do when they're hurting or scared or confused or otherwise in need of some comfort or help. They call, what do they do? They call out to their parents. They call out to their mother. They call out to their father. That's what children naturally do. That is the same thing that the Spirit does within us. The Spirit gives us a knowledge and a conviction that we really do belong to God. And we have the right, we have the privilege of crying out to Him. And in addition to this, so in addition to this merely objective, a more objective indicator of the Spirit's presence, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, there's this other subjective indicator, the very real crying out to God. The turning to Him that all true children naturally do. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ's own manner of relating to His Father. The language that He used to address God the Father was familiar language. In the Greek, it's intimate language. It's really familiar. It's day-to-day language. It's not formal. The way that Jesus referred to God actually is a way that none of the Jews ever referred to God. He didn't, they didn't use that intimate, familiar language of Abba, Father. They didn't feel they could. And yet, Jesus, that is the only way he referred to him with the exception of one occasion. But every other time, he always referred to him in that way. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There was a real struggle. Do you remember that? He's in the garden. He's about to get arrested and be crucified. There's this real struggle going on. Now, to be sure, it, it, was, it was a wrestling. It wasn't an example of Jesus putting to death the misdeeds of the body. He didn't have that, anything going on. It wasn't that kind of wrestling. However, it was a wrestling with the enormous challenge and difficulty of what, in a very short time for him, being faithful to God was going to mean for him. It meant that he was about to face the full, no holds barred, the full wrath of God against humanity for sin. And nobody knew better than him what that meant. And the anticipated intensity of that was so great. It was so great that even Jesus himself asked his father if there might be another way forward. You can imagine that. If he might not have to drink that particular cup of God's wrath. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed. That if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. He said, 
Daddy. Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus himself, in the midst of real struggle, he turns to his father and he calls out to him. Which is what any child would naturally do. And in a like manner, it is what the Spirit causes to be a reality for us in the midst of our own struggle, including the struggle to put to death sin within ourselves. In the midst of that, we turn to God as our Father because we know He's our Father. And we have nowhere else to go. Why does this matter? It matters because this is the difference. This is the huge difference. The knowledge that you belong to Him, you're His child, His adopted child, that is the difference between putting to death the misdeeds of our flesh simply by sheer moral effort and putting to death the misdeeds of our flesh by the Spirit. Because when we resist our sinful compulsions within us, and we do so by the Spirit, and specifically by the Spirit who reminds us that we are adopted by God, that we are His children, when we do that, We're operating out of the knowledge of that kind of knowledge. When we wrestle with our hearts out of the firm conviction of His settled love for us, that changes everything. It changes our war against sin from never-ending attempt to please a never-satisfied Father. It changes the battle from the attempt to appease a harsh taskmaster into admittedly hard yet ultimately glad pursuit of the One who loves us who's already shown that He loves us, who's already proven that He loves us, like nobody else, who in fact is the lover of our souls. It changes the wrestling with sin from a wrong-headed attempt to possibly influence the pending verdict of a sentencing judge. It changes it from that to a growing appreciation of God, really, as our hero. And a growing desire and ability not to appease one that we fear, but to imitate one that we admire and love. It is actually hero worship in the truest sense of the word. With God our Father as our greatest hero, as the daddy we love and want to be like when we grow up. If you're not careful when you watch children, sometimes you can learn some things. Watch a little boy or girl shadowing mom or dad around the house. And whatever mom or dad does, they try to imitate it. Dad picks up a screwdriver. Child picks up one or something like it. Mom reaches down to grab an offending weed from the garden bed. And the child reaches out and tries to do the same. Whenever you see that kind of thing, children doing that, what that child is saying amongst many other things is, that's my dad. That's my mom. I'm trying to be like them. But they see us other ways too. Sometimes they see us in ways that aren't worth imitating. Sometimes we're just idiots. Sometimes we're fools. And they see that too, and yet they still, amazingly, they still want to be like us. You can, given enough time, kill that aspiration in a child. It takes a while. Why does it take a while? Because there's an affection there. There's an attachment that runs long and it runs deep. And that 
is what the Spirit does. That's what our adoption as sons and daughters of the great King has to do with this whole matter of holiness. The Spirit creates within us a genuine affection for God. A love for the Father that pulls us toward Him. An affection that works on us such that the thing about our adoption as sons and daughters, it's not so much that we are sons and daughters, though that's important. It's not as egocentric as that. The thing about it is this. He is our Father. We get to be His children. We're connected to Him. We're fascinated by Him. We're amazed by Him. Him, that one, He is my Father. And I want to be just like Him when I grow up. That's what the Spirit does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not only working in us, but working in us the way you work in us. Would you please continue by your spirit to work out that very real affection for you that testifies to us internally. We know we're your children. And you keep us coming back to you and turning to you and looking to you, not driven by fear, but by the knowledge that we're yours, but more importantly, you're ours. You are our Father. Endear us to you. Fascinate us with you. And by that means, put to death those things within us that aren't like you. And put in their place all the things that are. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support this church and the various ministries through this church.